You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So today's pod is with my friend Katie Borum, who is the executive director of the Center for Media and Social Impact. Uh, She is the associate professor of communication at American University and the author of Story Movements and co-author with Lauren Feldman of A Comedian and an Activist Walk Into a Bar, um, The Serious Role of Comedy and Social Justice. We actually did a live podcast taping right before COVID shutdown uh, with um, Katie and Lauren at the Second City. And she's got a new book, which is called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, Comedy for Social Change and Civic Power. So enjoy the pod. Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting DS And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Katie Gorham, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm very happy to be here. All right, we should set up. We're friends. Let's start there, right? We're yes, friends. we are friends and, and mutual fans of one another. And mutual fans of one another. Right now, we are both in Washington, D.C., but we're not together. That is correct, which is okay. very sad. It's a sad thing. Uh, I am in a hotel room at the Mayflower. Make your jokes now. Scandalous, naughty, dirty, dirty, dirty. Go ask at the front desk. They oh no, I, I know. I remember. I was wondering if I'm aging myself by remembering the Mayflower, Mayflower, Madam. Uh, you know what? Both and I, both you and I, recognize that. So we're both very old people. Uh, yeah, um, I'm a bit older than you. Well, I also remember it, but I think uh, our, you know, my students would not know what I was talking no, about. No, and no. as a professor, I would not necessarily tell them to look it up. No. And also, I feel like it's such a quaint scandal these days. Like, <laughs> yes. you're like oh, the Mayflower Matter. Yeah, it's an How adorable scandal. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is actually, 
apropos of our conversation, because I'm here to do a keynote um, and you've uh, written a fantastic new book. Um, It's called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, Comedy for Social Change and Civic Power. Quick uh, um, thing. Did I ever tell you the original title that we sold HarperCollins on for Yes And? Was it this? It was The Revolution Will Be Improvised. No way. Why did you not go with that? Well, we led the sales team through an improv workshop. And after we led them through Yes And, they're like, you need to call the book Yes And. Yeah, I get that. No, and they were a thousand percent right. Yeah. Like, it's so funny, too, because like, folks, I didn't invent Yes And. (laughs) Like, like I'd like no one invented yes and, but I wrote the yes and book, and so this is like yes, I am signing copies of the book, and I'm here in Washington to go do this thing. So, but you're, but again, and I think you know, six years ago or so when we released that book, I don't think this concept uh, was maybe as clear as it is right now with regard to the work you've done. Mm -hmm. And I want to start with this actually, though. You begin the book in the preface by writing, "quote." I have a few things to say about comedy people. The first is, you know, if you are one of them, end quote. Yes. (laughs) First, talk more about that. Thank you so much for asking about that beginning, Kelly Leonard. I really appreciate it because I had been studying and working with comedy for years, right? If you, Mm -hmm. uh, the book opens with a scene of me and my former boss, Norman Lear on a soundstage in LA producing a ridiculous comedic civic engagement campaign. And so there was, there was that production work, but then I had been really on a very serious research agenda about comedy and social change for about a decade. Right. And Mm -hmm. But then I sat down to write, you know, I've been writing the book forever and I wrote the preface. It just came to me one morning. It's very much in the spirit of comedy people, which is what I learned so much about working with comedy people is there's this kind of confessional deviant play where we all get to just drop the banal small talk and talk about things that are weird and funky. And I've always been that kind of person. Yeah. So it occurred to me as I was sort of wrapping up the book, I thought, what kind of book author am I if I don't give a little confession about how I am also that kind of person, right? Like the the fact that the universe saw to it that I would study these topics and write about them and work with comedians to me doesn't feel accidental when you take into account that as I write in the preface, Um, you know, I was a very clowny kid. Mm -hmm. I got in trouble for talking too much in school. I still get in trouble for talking too much in meetings. I cannot stop telling the undercover joke. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I needed to tell my readers that I'm not just a, a sort of scholar and producer in this work, but I get it because I am a little bit of a deviant character myself. And I, and I mean that in the best possible way, even though I'm not sure everyone would frame disruptive comedic deviance in a positive way. But that to me, that's, uh, that's sort of high praise. So I was sort of confessing that I understand comedy people, I think, because I understand that impulse to be weird and silly and to let that bring people together. Well, I think what you're getting at, and I think, check me if I'm not I think, I, I think this is true. <laughs> everyone has deviant thoughts. Yes. Everyone. everyone. Yeah. Um, and the social contract uh, and the social contracts that we have for most people 
that doesn't, you don't get to like say them out loud. Yeah. Comedians, it's their job to say them out loud. Yeah. Uh, and so when you are, and I, I had, I, I, I hope you make it to Chicago actually soon. We have a, a show that we just opened. It's our black excellence show and it's called dance. Like black people are watching. Oh, fine. it's so good. It's so good. And the director Rob Wilson and I were just talking the other day and he just like dropped in and, and asked me what I thought of the show. And I loved it so much. There's a scene and I'm, I'm going to give it away because this isn't airing for a few weeks and the, 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 the show will almost be wrapping up. Uh, but it's a guy wakes up from a 30 year coma and the nurse is explaining that about streaming. And she's like, I can get you any television show. It's the most amazing thing, anything you want. And he's like, I just, it's been so long. I just want to relax with America's dad. Can you give me the, Oh my God. <laughs> Oh no. And all and basically the rest of the scene is him kind of pointing to her to put it on and her just kind of looking like I I don't Oh my I god, I love it. Until she goes, he did some very bad things. And there's this, this, this no. lovely and I remember talking to Rob about it, going like that is such a a, a you know, and my wife has to teach this, right? In her in her comedy yeah. program of like the years why I'm teaching because Cosby hugely important. Hugely important to black comedy. Like there is no black comedy. There's no Richard Pryor without Bill Cosby. Totally. Um, But there, you also can't deny this thing. So that tension um, is something that comedians can wrestle with. And that's a, I think for someone like yourself who maybe didn't have the schema to call yourself a comedy person at the time, recognized, Oh, I like this. Oh, because because yeah. it gives some it gives some softness to the hard conversation. Yeah, it's totally true. And and by the way, on that topic, even though you were not asking me about this, um, there I don't know if you've seen W. Kamau Bell directed a great, uh, I think, four part series on Showtime called "We Have to Talk About Cosby." Yeah, yes. and really, I had just I had just finished talking about this with colleagues, and I said, you know, W. Kamau Bell was definitely the one to make this, right? Yes. A black comedian who said, I was really raised on this person as a yep. comedian. And, and we have to talk about not just what he did, but we have to talk about the cultural rift that happens when someone who, you know, blazed a path and all of that. that yeah. But For yeah, sure. it's the it's the deviance and the play, right? Is, I mean, we're not going to talk about the preface for an hour, Kelly, but I... It is um, the, the play is yeah. really part of it, right? I mean, yeah. it's, uh, we lose so much when, and I know this is what you write about, you know, specifically about how principles of improv really help us to problem solve and create strategic mm-hmm. thinking and all of that. And it is so absolutely true when we think about all the meetings that we have all had to suffer through. You've probably suffered through fewer terrible meetings because you're at yeah, any right. case. Yep. But the meetings where you're problem solving or dire- directing some kind of a strategy and the air in the room is so thick with self-importance and egos and all of it. And once you kill that energy, you can't bring it back, right? So you do sometimes need one or two people who can be willing to be introducing ideas of play into the space just to get at the innovative thinking. It's just key. But here, And here's the problem. And I think this is true in academia, I know it's true in corporate America, when Second City tried to frame our offerings as play, no one's buying. 
if we frame them as improvisation, they'll buy it. They get like, oh yeah, you have to improvise. You got to be agile. You got to do this. You're like, you recognize, well, you don't clearly, but what you need to recognize is that the root of all of this is play. And one of the things, and and Sarah Rose Kavanaugh, I don't know if you know her. She's a terrific educator. She's got a book coming out called Mind Over Monsters. And she talks about the fact that we need to play fight. And now we don't do that. Interesting. How do we understand our bodies and the limits we can take it in if we don't have a safe place, safe place to play fight? So I think that that, and overall, what this book really gets at, I think, which is maybe going to be surprising to people, is you're talking about how do you change the world (laughs) and how do you um, stand up for marginalized individuals and groups. Um, And what you're suggesting is one of the pathways, not for every pathway, one of the pathways is through comedy. Yes. All right. So give us, give us like why, why, how? Yes. So when we think about, so I'll start with a kind of culture 101 and I will move through it quickly because I'm sure your listeners, uh, if they're listening to your podcast, they understand that you're talking about culture all the time. But the sort of idea of culture 101 is the idea that uh, we are not what, what I would call sort of enlightenment era humans. We don't simply take in information, you know, and I'm using my fancy enlightenment voice. I've taken in the information from the New York Times Mm -hmm. and I know my stance on climate justice. I mean, it would be so good for smart people if that's actually how things worked, right? And we believed in facts and science. And it's not, and I'm always careful to say, especially in a mixed room, and I'm sure you have a a very um, diverse audience in terms of occupational background and all of that. But I'm not saying we don't want journalism and scientists and facts. Of course, we need all of that. We need that in a comedy too, right? Yep. But what I'm saying is it's absurd to think that we develop our feelings and emotions and uh, our cultural beliefs about people and heroes and villains and who is worth our time and thought the fact that it would only come through rational thought and information is absurd, right? So when we think about the role of culture, as I write in the book, culture is sort of the, the it, it's, it, it's, it's uh, everywhere. We're swimming in it, right? Um, and uh, so much of what we know and believe about the world comes through that. Now, here's where comedy comes in, is uh, when we think about cultural reflections of people and communities and regions and ideas, uh, what has happened far too often in this country, ooh, spoiler alert, institutional yes. racism and sexism. I'm so sorry. To this is going to be news to people. I'm very sorry that this is where you're finding out about this. Yeah. But in that cultural landscape, I'm talking about entertainment culture, when we only see uh, particular groups or people either portrayed just to use a binary as either like a superhero, a hero, Mm-hmm. or some kind of a, a negative dehumanizing trope, there's a way in which we can't see the full expression of that lived experience. Now, comedy, as we know, is a really particular form of uh, creative product mm-hmm. because in order for it to be funny, it has to get its hands dirty a little bit, right? Like we have to see flawed people. We have to see people making mistakes. We see people farting and pooping. You know, that stuff is funny. It binds us as humans And so when comedy is allowed um, to tell us the stories 
of women and people of color and people from the disability community and LGBTQ plus, um, we get past this idea of either like hero or villain, and we can see people in all of our banal, hilarious humanity. And one of the things that I've been saying lately about comedy um, that I that I love is um, there's a limit to empathy, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Empathy at some is beautiful. It's probably one of my teenagers. Oh my god! Right on cue. I'm ignoring. They're doing a podcast. Um, I like that. That's on here now. She yes. Oh no! I'm lying to her, and she'll we're keeping it in. It's keeping yeah. it. Yeah. 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 I'll be like, sweetie, I just didn't get your call. Um, empathy is a beautiful human emotion, of course. But there's a level of some kind of empathy where we can look at another person or a story and say, well, you know what? I'm awfully glad that's not me, right? Yeah. I can feel a kind of pity. Solidarity is a different form of expression. Solidarity, which is, I think, some of some comedy can evoke this in us. We can see people in their full, messy, hilarious humanity. And in that messiness, we see ourselves, right? Like, oh, yeah. we're the same. And this is a very, I will say here, Kelly... To your listeners, a thing to know about me is that I'm a hopeless optimist. So I recognize there's a million asterisks and footnotes that I should put there about like some people are really bad and all of those things. But this is sort of the base level of this idea. And then when we can see ourselves, at least comedically, in ways that are expansive and funny and human, uh, we are at least partially contributing to this idea of what I call civic power. When we see ourselves represented in all of our complexities and, and feel some power from that, you know, in terms of our efficacy with the system and things like that, all of that kind of adds up. I was going through my notes with this keynote I'm delivering in a few hours. And one of the things I recognize that I do is the first 10 minutes or so where I sort of talk about like, why am I in front of you? Who am I? It's mostly like um, my faults and the weird, bad stuff that has happened to me Um, and not the tragic stuff, the stuff that's actually funny. Um, And in part, because I I, I certainly from what I know about working with the behavioral science community is, is like, no one is interested in your successes. (laughs) Yes. They want your fiascos. Give me your fiascos. And then, and because they're going to, you know, potentially relate to that. And that's, that's. That's but there's right. another thing that's happening with regard to comedy and, and you touch, you don't just touch on this. You talk about explicitly in the book. Uh, so at second city, we get, you know, lots of visiting celebrities who come and want to hang out. And it's a, it's a fair number of rock stars, rock stars. all want to be comedians. Comedians all want to be rock stars. Love it. And I think what they're both trading in is this idea of cultural capital. Yes. And what people maybe don't understand um, is how that's changed over the last 50 to 100 years where cultural capital now is the domain of a lot of these marginalized groups uh, in terms of their music and their dance and their clothes. And so you have all these people with a lot of capital, financial capital, um, but that's not necessarily what they are going to need if they want social capital. Right. Right. Which comes from sometimes cultural capital. Yes, that's right. And actually, um, so one of the, uh, we should say to our, your listeners, I've made them our listeners. Our um, listeners. I say our listeners. Is um, the book is full of lots of 
you know, uh, science and cultural stuff about, you know, why comedy, how we think about it as audiences, blah, blah, blah. But it also tells a lot of stories that bring these ideas yeah. to life. And actually, one of my favorite stories, which is why I wrote about it, um, that really is exemplary of what you just said, is the chapter on Native American comedy oh, and visibility. Yep. Talk about that. It's such a good example of exactly of this idea of cultural power, creative power, and why it really ultimately matters for civic power, which um, really is the idea that we're building communities who feel real efficacy and real power in their ability to matter in decision-making in this country, right? So that is sort of the end goal here. So uh, backing up a little bit, um, there's an amazing activist named Crystal Echohawk who runs an organization called Illuminative. And that organization really started when she um, facilitated this large study. And I'm, I'm going to grossly streamline with apologies to Crystal that uh, she was asking a representative sample of, uh, of American people, uh, basically what they know about Native American people and what they think about them. And the, the findings were shocking even to her, and she's been doing this Native advocacy work forever. And among the findings, she found some really startling things, like there was something insane, like 75%, I'm going to I, I'm not going to do the statistics because I did not just study her uh, her study before I got on this. But uh, a, a shocking majority of people didn't know or believe that Native people still existed in this country, that they were a community at all. Yeah, it's nearly they, 50%. I wrote it down. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. right? Like, it's yeah. crazy. oh, my God. Like, we need to do another podcast on education what? in America. You think it was just a made-up thing for movies? No, it was truly. Yes, yes, yes. And then, uh, and, and she sort of challenged me to do this thing, which I did. And I wrote about in the book, like if you Google Native Americans, this was at the time I wrote the book and um, you are likely to see a lot of historic photos of people in regalia and all of that. It's not that that's inaccurate, but they're historical, right? Can you imagine if the only, you know, photos of my Irish and Scottish people were, you know, their ancestors, anyway, whatever. Yeah. So, um, so she, uh, the work is really about this idea of what she calls invisibility about Native peoples. Okay, so flash, okay, people are wondering, is she going to talk about comedy at all? Yes. So there is a show called Reservation Dogs. There are several Native comedy shows on TV right now. We might call that a Native comedy renaissance Um but Reservation Dogs is created by, it's a multiple Peabody Award winning television show, which is a really big deal. It's the hardest award to get in uh, entertainment. And um, it's about life on the res. And it's totally created by a showrunner and writers and cast that are all Native. It's, it's the first time in U.S. television history, which, by the way, we should all feel bad about that, even while sure. we're celebrating that, right? It's ridiculous. Um so here's an amazing thing about that show. So the show is super funny and uh, and it's very contemporary and there's lots of, you know, universal things we can identify with, which is what great comedy does. Um, so a beautiful thing uh, that has been happening because of the show is that Native young people around the country have been, because of participatory culture, have been creating things like podcasts and YouTube series where they talk about which of the characters is most like them. And they talk about last night's episode 
And um, there is a, a power in that kind of beyond the representation, like full stop, the representation of a funny, fully complex place for them to play and have joy. Um, that is uh, this concept that I write about in the book that does not come from me. It comes from scholars named, uh, oh my gosh, you look it up, people. Um, their names just escape me. But um, this idea of cultural citizenship, which is if you don't see yourself represented culturally, there is, a, it's disempowering in a sure. fairly dramatic way. So that's a that's a fun story about this idea of cultural and creative power. And there's so much movement happening right now on native visibility and activism that is, you know, really putting culture and comedy front and center. So fun. We had, we had interviewed uh, DJ Vaness, who is with the Ottawa tribe, and two quotes from his book that I pulled. One was, play releases us from our shackles, and oh. laughter and humor also make us more resilient. Yes, and I think that 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 idea of resilience is is hugely important here because yes. first it's being seen and that's great, yes. uh, but then if you want to go the layer deeper and of course we all do, uh, then you're going to have to like mess around and and that's where that's yes. where the comedy comes in play because it doesn't you just live in the tragedy and yes. and there and there's no there's no defeating those dark forces right um with and and i think that's where humor is the superpower right that's that's yes. and you have this somewhere else in the book in terms of i forget which scholar said it but like dictators you know just hate, oh. hate mockery oh yeah i mean that's the thing trump who does wield humor never likes it when it's thrown at him yes and if you think about it that way i did very much like writing that chapter about um comedy and authoritarian or wannabe authoritarian uh Regimes that when you think about um, in the very definition of authoritarianism is really about a group of people who submit too much to kind of authority figures, right? That is the sort of dictionary definition. Obviously, we put it in a governance capacity and we have lots of other, you know, meanings. But um, when you think about that, uh, part of the reason that dictators and would-be dictators hate comedy so much is because the act of doing comedy about a scary authoritarian figure is showing that you're not afraid. Yeah. And there's nothing worse. It takes the power out, right? If you're not afraid of me, uh, says, uh, you know, Katie, the dictator, then I'm not doing this authoritarian job very well because this is what I have. I'm ruling with fear. And so when we, you know, one of the things I don't write about as explicitly as now I would like to is when we look carefully at countries around the world that have succumbed to some kind of authoritarian governance, that what we see fairly immediately is the removal and harassment of journalists, which is something that we all know at a pretty basic level, because we have such a hero narrative about journalists, right? We kind of yep. know that they're in peril. But also what happens in very quick succession is the same thing happens to comedians. I don't know why culturally... Uh, we don't talk about that a little bit more and what that must say about how potent and powerful comedy is, right? So if journalists and comedians are removed or threatened or jailed or exiled, I feel like that means the comedy is working, right? Encouraging yeah. people to have voices of dissent, to feel optimistic, efficacy, to not give up, all of those things. 
So I don't know if this makes me feel good or bad about my country. Um, but, you know, we have this constant conversation in the comedy field of this. They've been canceled and they're always. Can- and I'm like, these people who are talking about being canceled are selling out Chicago theater. These yeah. people who are talking about being canceled have the most popular podcasts on in the country. Yeah. They are, they are, it is like, like, no, that is not what yeah. is actually happening. Yeah. And are they, should, should there be critique? I think a thousand percent. And we, I specifically know people who were harmed by people that we're, we're referencing here. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, so I think there's, this is great that in our country um, people can, you know, speak, speak their mind and, and say these, these things, um, and, and still have a, a way to feed themselves and make money and do all that. Yeah. And then on the other hand, there's this other thing of like, yeah, but there's also, there's just seems no consequences for people who do real harm. Yeah. By, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, foster propaganda, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, oh, there's so many different layers to that. But, um, you know, when I write about this a little bit in the book, and I think about it a lot, and I teach this class called Comedy and Social Change at American University. And uh, the students like to talk about that a lot, because I think there's been so much coverage of that idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always say, you know, I might not be the best person to sort of ask about this, because I think that on the one hand, yes, and I do address this in the book, that harmful comedy, when we look at, um, always look at the power dynamics involved in the comedian and who they are poking fun at and whether it is at someone's expense, you know, all of those things. But I also equally feel that when we start censoring comedians, like we're in trouble. That's a sense. That's a slippery slope. So one of my, one of my favorite, enduringly favorite stories, it's so favorite that I found a way to write about it in two books (laughs) um, is, and I can almost do the whole routine, but I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. But one of my favorite stories uh, about this idea of worrying about comedians is uh, the story of Michelle Wolf at the White House Correspondents' sure. Day. Mm-hmm. And I like that story because it's, uh, it's, it's showing that there's equal opportunity fear, right? Like being nervous about comedians does not solely belong to one political party or another, right? Mm-hmm. If we reduce things to binaries like that, sometimes that's not the way to do it. But for those who don't know that story, even though it was scandalous at the time, it was. and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. I mean, come on, in the big scheme of things, right? And you're right, Kelly, like, you know, now it seems not anyway. So the story is Michelle Wolf is invited to the White House Correspondents Dinner. And uh, it's during the Trump administration. Obviously, it's 2018. And the and the White House Correspondents Association, who is the inviting body, who, by the way, deep respect, um, just going to put that out there now. Uh, the inviting body put out this uh, lovely statement about Michelle Wolf on the eve of her performance and said, she espouses the values of the white, you know, freedom of first amendment, you know, mm-hmm. all these great things. I was like, well, <laughs> I hope they're ready for her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what Michelle Wolf did among other things was she has one of the most brilliant critiques of commercial journalism that I think we have seen, right? It was very courageous. So part of what she says, and I really have seen it so many times, I can paraphrase her, 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 one of her jokes is um, 
Did you got, did you used to date Trump? Because you act like you hate him, but I think you love him. He couldn't sell ties or water or Eric. And then she goes on and does this whole mm-hmm. but he sold your papers. He sold your TV stations and your books. And her big line is, she says, you helped create this monster and now you're profiting off of him. And her sign off of the whole talk, do we just violate every copyright? Well, no, we're get good. Michelle, we're well good. big fan. Um, yeah, and her right. sign off of the whole talk, and she goes on to, you know, more what I would call media criticism. And at the very end, she says, uh, Flint still doesn't have clean water. So brilliant. Mm-hmm. And so actually that story is, is only complete when we talk about what happened next, which is, I think the journalists who invited her were not prepared for the fact that the comedian was going to make everything fair game. Right. She didn't. She understood pretty easily that they definitely wanted her to make fun of Trump and every, you know, you make fun of the sitting president. That's how it works yep. Yep. for 45 years. Um, but I think they were unprepared for the fact that the comedian was going to look around and say, you know what, I'm doing full social critique and I'm going to make it funny, but y'all are fair game because everything she said was true. Record ratings at CNN and every every other outlet in the creation of the Trump mythos, right? And like covering every bit of it. So what happened at the end of that was the um, the White House Correspondents Association apologized for mm-hmm. Michelle Wolf and said, in fact, I'm grossly paraphrasing, it turns out she does not have our values at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? She, she, what? Freedom yeah. of expression. She just did the thing you said you are for. Um, and it was just such a brilliant social critique. But I, I think the idea was um, if comedians are going to perform this other role, we've talked about play and optimism and representation and, and all of that. But it's also the idea of social critique, holding up something that is so grotesque that it deserves to be lampooned, which is the original Aristotle idea. Um, so I love that story about Michelle Wolf, And I thought that history might see it differently and feel a little squeamish that journalists around the country were like, we don't like that she talked about female genitalia. I was like, I don't think that's not that, that was the about. problem, right? <laughs> I, she, it's not because she talked about pussy hats. It's because she, talked, I mean, she does have a really good joke about pussy hats, by the way, yeah. yarn. But, um, but it was because she took aim at everyone. And I think that back to our original point here, um, that is a power dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. She was poking fun at an institution of power and every institution of power needs a watchdog, including yes. commercial journalism. Yeah. And they were just unprepared that she was going to be funny about that as well. And I think they were like, we're, and, and, and you remember Kelly, because we're both comedy nerds. The next year, for the first time in 45 years, they had a historian. Well, didn't didn't Rich Little show up at some point, too? You know what? I don't even know, but it was a historian, and I was at the one with the historian, and the historian was fine, but it was not. (laughs) Well, and and this year, Roy Wood Jr. Roy Wood Jr. Oh, could not be a more perfect choice. And by the way, I never really actually want to go to this event because it is mostly terrible lighting and, and like rubber food. But I am definitely going to try to go because Roy Wood Jr. is perfect for this. Well, I remember because we talked after this when Stephen Colbert did that. And I think by, b- before that, this thing was not on the map. I think yes. we have to say Colbert yes. put this thing on the map. Yes. And uh, 
So, you know, my, my wife, Anne and Stephen were roommates in college and one of their other, um, classmates at Northwestern was Harry Lennox, the actors in the matrix. Harry was there. And so Stephen gets off stage and Harry's like, you nailed them. Stephen had no idea what he was talking about because Stephen was like, I just did my character. My character said everything my character would say. And he was just like, and he had no idea that it wielded this thing. And I think the reality is the only people who are more thin skinned than journalists are other comedians. So you got, and so so it's just this sort of perfect circle of like oh come on, like what is happening here and and the yes. I, you know and I'm friends with a ton of journalists that yeah that's, same same yeah you yes. too go, you and, go um, journalism yes yeah lo- and love it but but the way like we love comedy yeah we yes. want to hold it to a much higher standard so yeah. when my comedian friends or even not friends do jokes that are unworthy of them i'm mm-hmm. like come on you can be smarter than that and it's like you you should be smarter than that and the same with with journalists especially given what we've gone through over the last like 15 16 years yes. in terms of coverage and i get that obama was hard to cover for both comedians and journalists yeah i get it but and Luther, I get the anchor translator i mean trump was, and trump was easy yeah, you know, and I and yeah. and I get that, but that doesn't excuse either in terms of a lazy response to trying to understand. And this is what right. I wouldn't I wouldn't call him by any stretch a comedy writer, but George Saunders' journalism mm. in terms of the, this world to me is so insightful and often very funny yeah. in its tragedy and its pathos and its sort of understanding of what's underneath all of this, which is the gritty stuff that yes. real artists are are playing with. Yes. And you have, you know, thinking about, um, you know, just the, 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 the real social commentary that she was making, if we had had that kind of professional level soul searching while 24 hour cable, for example, was in a, just a frenzy over how great it was to cover this person if we had had a, a sort of more thoughtful, deliberative thought, and now you you can see um, a lot of think pieces that have come out since then from journalists were like, mm-hmm. you know what, maybe we should be thinking about this as, yeah. you know, we get ready for the next election. By the way, nobody came back and was like, and so we apologize to Michelle Wolf. Uh, that didn't happen. But yeah. I think Michelle Wolf uh, was great. And she made people nervous. And that's part of what we need comedy to do right back to this idea of Oh, authoritarian and media control and all of that. So one of the things that struck me about the book uh, was, and you draw on many stories of writers' rooms you've put together and, and other, other programs that either I was already aware of or, or was not. So much of it was done in the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, this yes. is like, this is hard times for our field, for our, yeah. for our talking about our comedy field and, and everyone's yeah. field, of course. Yeah. But we, you know, you know, like Second City almost went away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that for for, for I, I haven't talked about that that much on this podcast. Yeah. But like we were very close to bankruptcy. Well, I did probably a week or two, oh. and and some heroic efforts by um, uh, folks. Uh, uh, David Quinn, I'm just gonna give you a shout out uh, who worked for Second City, who got an amazing, got some money to keep keep us going and mm. you know we were now 
great. We've got new owners and new leadership and we're, we're, we're doing it. Yeah. Um, but um, it was, I, and I remember because I was on some, because it's not like we stopped working, right? So so I'm doing virtual keynotes and we're leading workshops and we're trying to do online shows and all, all those different things. But yeah. we're also having these sort of Zoom conversations about what's happening and yeah. are we going to be able to be in rooms again? And you had a, a situations in the book that you talk about where you started being in rooms and then you couldn't go back in those rooms. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. God, you know, it's, do you feel like that's ancient history? Like I'm listening to you and I'm remember. Yeah. Sometimes I do. And I think this says a lot about me as a person is that if a very bad thing happens, I would like to just. (laughs) You're giving it the Heisman. I am just like, you are. Yep. Nope. We're all good. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, Kelly, I'm not living in that anymore. Cause (laughs) I needed it to be over. Cause as an extrovert, I mean, look, these are not real problems, by the way, this thing I'm about to say, you know, as an extrovert, the first week that we were really shut down, I cry. I'm also a morning person extrovert. You can imagine how much you want to avoid me at 7 a.m. But as a morning person extrovert, I was crying in the bathroom every day at 5 in the morning because I thought, oh, my God, I need the people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's funny that the that we had started a lot of comedy work um, at the I run this innovation lab and research center called the Center for Media and Social Impact. And um, in large part, based on my research, not entirely, though, um, we had started a number of programs that are designed to do a number of things, like lift up comedians who are doing this work that we really care about, um, people telling social justice stories in new, fresh, fun ways, and um, diverse comedians, and bringing human rights groups and comedians together. And uh, most of that started around 2018 and 2019. So it was actually after my first uh, book with Lauren Feldman came out, which was, oh God, no, it was before that. Okay. It turns out maybe I do have brain damage from this time period. That was 2020. Uh, oh yeah. How can we forget? Um, but yeah, it started a couple years before. Um, and um, I remember being amazed, but not really. While I was in the middle, I was writing this new book during the pandemic and just chronicling the fact, this is not really in the book, but while I was writing the book, which was keeping my soul alive, by the way, um, to write about funny people and talk to funny people and to mm-hmm. feel like I could express um you know, my own sadness in ways that were fun. Um, but the, the the number one kind of content that was shared during the pandemic, the global shutdown was comedy. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. that, you know, I feel like there are these moments when, I mean, we, we a, a couple of things happen, right? A, we've, we learned what essential workers are and, mm-hmm. you know, we realized how much, we needed teachers and, you know, people who should be the absolute superheroes of our, of our society were suddenly lifted up in a way that we were desperate for them and that we needed comedy as a way to survive. But yeah, comedy way less fun online, but still more fun than just yeah not working in comedy. Well, I'm pretty sure if memory serves didn't we do one of the last live 
things yes. neither of us did. Oh my gosh. In fact, Kelly, this is how distinct this memory was. So I was so excited to come to Second City mm-hmm. with uh, my co-author, Lauren Feldman. This was our first book called A Comedian and Activist Walk Into a Bar. So excited to do the podcast live with you in the yep. hallowed halls of Second City. Mm-hmm. And uh, and what I did to prepare, because it was my you know, it was my first book and my first yep. like book talk. Uh, now I'm a grizzled veteran, but um, I went to, as you do, an Irish pub uh-huh. in, uh, and, 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 you know, I had a little time to kill and I needed a snack. So I got some mozzarella sticks and a Guinness mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, re- I was sitting there with the book and I, I remember looking to my right and my left and the news was just starting to be dire about the temp- pandemic. And I thought, is this really all going to go away? I can't, my brain can't grasp that. And then we did talk we did, we did and the talk then, and then my and then memory of, my and memory my, of, the whole book tour was over I, my memory of this was uh we sneezing had person? the we had yes. an audience member who yes. was sneezing and coughing and shook our hands and the minute that like she left the room we all ran to the bathroom oh, to yeah. wash our hands oh yeah and that was you know before hand sanitizer was no 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 this was just us thinking like maybe. regular clean people yeah yeah and then days later, right? Days. That was it. Isn't that sad? That was my one and only. So I feel like this is a beautiful uh, universe moments conspiring because you were the first and only <laughs> live podcast. And now we get to do this one. Yeah, we do this one while we're in the same city, but not together. Um, know. You know, stuff happens. Uh, but no, but this, this this opens up whole world world for us. And there will be, of course, more conversations. So yeah. uh, one of the things I prepped you for was asking you um, because, you know, you, you've answered the yes and thing, you, you know, you, yeah. you live it like I live it. Um, yeah. But this idea that, um, you know, Anne and I and Anne more than me uh, kind of came up with, with the professors at university of Chicago, which is what happens when you can't yes. And um, when you just, you, the, the person in front of you, you just don't agree with, but you need to stay inside the conversation. Yes. And that's where we came up with this idea of thank you because. Yeah. And so the question, and this is a hard one for people, but it's like, yeah. you have a thank you because moment that you can, that either did happen, didn't happen, that you, you reflect should have happened, that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, so when I reflected on that question, I'm not sure I have a great answer, actually, because this one is hard, Kelly. It is hard. When I reflected on it, I thought about the scenarios in which I feel like I'm in a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, because I try to not be in them because I am pretty conflict averse, but um, but I am a fiery temper lady. So Mm -hmm. both things can live in the same girl. Um. So either it's contentious because uh, I want something to go my way, right? So I'm being ego-driven in that moment, mm-hmm. or it's contentious for reasons that we all have to deal with, like crazy politics and our family don't, you know, I have family members that definitely do not think the way that I do. And I was thinking, well, those are my most difficult conversations when I'm really trying to persuade, and there's a kind of dominance coming from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I'm not great at this. Thank you. Because so actually is even you telling me this is going to make me reflect on this. So what I thought about was, um, look, during the pandemic, all of us had to do some kind of navel gazing, 
Yes. We were staring at our own terrible humanity, Mm -hmm. stuck in our screens. What are we made of? What are we resilient at all? Like on an individual level, like what makes us happy? turns out people do make me happy. It's confirmed. Yep. Um, So what I have done a lot of thinking about over the last couple of years, you know, also well in relation to all of this is I think my answer would be thank you because I know we're all really afraid of something. Mm. And I, th- I think that is true. I don't know how that would go over in one of these difficult conversations, but now that you're, since you prompted me, cause I think when we're behaving in ways that are egocentric, right? I want my way. I want, you know, and I'm a little bit of a dominant personality sometimes. And uh, I'm at my worst when I am really trying to snowplow everybody. Um, and that's, uh, ego, what am I afraid of, right? Am I afraid of losing control? Am I afraid of not being the only one with the idea? And when I think about difficult conversations with members of my extended family um, who have politics that I think are based on fear. Yep. And I think if, at my most empathetic self, I would say fear happened to you somewhere. Yeah. You're afraid of people. You're afraid yeah. of city. I don't know what it is, but there's real fear there. And I can see it with the, I will leave this person unnamed, but the person who's who I have to deal with the most that is in this way, I think that her life is shaped by early childhood fear. Sure. And so I think the most gracious way to see that we're all, because we're all afraid. Because we all are. Yeah. Yeah. Losing someone, losing status, losing, you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I've ever shared this with you. The, the, when I, when I'm speaking about this, I often refer to how I, how I used it in my life. And I'd love to know that. Yeah. When Nora got sick, her best, one of her best friends, parents were anti-vax well before this was fashionable, of course. Right. So this is five, four, four, five years ago. And, um, uh, and, and the kids, you know, wanted to be in communication. And so what I ended up saying to them was thank you. Um, because you care for your girl so much, you don't want her hurt by these vaccines. I care mm. for my girl so much. I don't want her hurt by someone who's unvaccinated. So we actually care about the same thing. We care about yeah. our girls. Um, and so what we figured out is they could FaceTime, they could text, they could write letters. There was yeah. just all these different ways that they could stay in touch that didn't involve a hospital visit. Um, mm. And that maintained the relationship both for the girls, which was really not going to be the problem, yeah. but it was for the parents in terms of like, like, oh, are we one of us judging the other? Where and it's yes. like it just took all of that out, and it was like, no, there's a bigger thing that's important here that mm. we all sort of rallied around. Mm. Um, and that was it was effective, uh, not easy. Yeah, you know, and again, because it's like this is a life and death thing. This is not this, yeah. Not like, but but also um, <laughs> when it's a life and death thing, you need everything. You need yes. everyone. Yes. So that is like you know. So I think that. The and the I it's like yes, Anne, right? It's not so much about the words, mm-hmm. it's about the mindset of can you just get yourself in a mindset of like, I know that this person and I are just not gonna see eye to eye. We don't think the same way, but yeah. they are human and we are both humans trying to yeah. make our way through the world. And it's 
unless they are a psychopath or a sociopath. And I think that's a pretty small percentage. Yeah. Yes. We might throw it around more than that, but it's a pretty small percentage. Chances are they're a scared human being. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, yes. I mean, I, I love that. That's a way I might use that. I will cite you of course, but I love the, I mean, you know, in a workshop or something, but Finding our common humanity and our common appeals, I think, is so vulnerable. And um, God, we're just not good at it these days. No, 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 no. And again, yeah. I think the thing that we, what we love about our the, the comedy field that we both play in is that it it is a really potentially elegant way to open that door for people, yeah. especially in a crowd, in, a, in, a, in an audience where you're yes. the only one thinking that and you don't need to have anyone else know that you're sort of thinking of that. And that's yeah. every, every comedian's dream, especially the artists that work at second city is like, I just want one or two of them on the drive home to maybe be like, wow, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's exactly right. Yeah. Thinking about the, um, this is sort of random. It's not as elegant as your thank you because idea, which is very elegant and lovely. It feels like it goes well beyond comedy. Mm. Um, it feels like just really good therapy. So I'm just going to yeah. take it. <laughs> and as I say, meditate on it. Um, but the, one of the stories I tell in the book is about this comedian named Corey Ryan Forrester, who is part of a trio that call themselves the, uh, the liberal rednecks. And they're all from the deep South. And um, he tells a story that, you know, I cited almost uninterrupted in the book about how he first started telling, you know, he's doing comedy in, in deep South states, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. And he said he first understood sort of the power of his own comedic voice to maybe help people think a little bit more expansively beyond, and by the way, not demonizing Southern people at all, but just saying like, this is your original, uh, your, your sort of regional affiliation. You're more steeped in it than you can possibly know. People might not know. Right. Um, So he he said he was telling a joke about um, don't ask, don't tell uh, back when that was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, any tell I, I'm going to entice people to buy the book so you can find out what the joke is because the go. joke is in the book. Um, but he say he he does it like sort of three quarters of the way through his routine, and he's doing jokes about like my memo and your papa and we're all. And by the way, I'm southern, so I can say mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, and then like three quarters of the way through, when he has them and there's you know lactose intolerant, what cheap beer do we like? Blah 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 football. And, uh, and then he hits him with this joke that's really an anti-homophobia joke. And he says, people laugh. And he said, without question, every time he would do that in the most um, sort of politically unexpected spaces, people would come up to him and say, you know what? That joke was so funny. And I, you know what? I never saw it like that before. And mm-hmm. he, you know, as I read in the book, he's like, it's not like I went away and thought I solved homophobia in the deep south. By the way, it doesn't only exist in the deep south. Another spoiler, listeners. But that he thought, you know, if I just made one or two people say, you know, I just never seen it that way before. And that is ultimately the big argument that I always make about comedy and social justice is that we have to see beyond the status quo. We have to have some kind of deviant imagination to see things 
differently. And comedy has to do that because that's how it works. So I, I love that story. Corey's one of my favorites. The book is called The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, Comedy for Social Change and Civic Power. Katie Bourne, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was great fun. I'm sad it's over. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive